that the Lord is doing, all that the Lord has done. We're just so grateful for his word and how he's just proven himself to be faithful to us over these uh, last few weeks. And even as we have been diving into First Samuel, just how he has proven his faithfulness in the word of God. And so we are excited today just to continue in the book of First Samuel as we have been walking and navigating through and understanding the depths of who God is through First Samuel and also how he has been pointing us to the gospel and ultimately to Jesus Christ himself. And so the title of today's sermon, if you haven't seen it already, is I Did It My Way. I Did It My Way. And so we are coming this time out of 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're going to look at the entirety of this chapter. So I would encourage you, if you could, uh, when you grab your Bible, just be ready to read, because we are reading the entire 1 Samuel chapter 15. But I hope as we read and we're building our biblical literacy, we will also see the message that God has for us here out of this passage today. So if you have it with you, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're starting at the very first verse. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant and ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Am Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me as, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to the sacrifice of the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And, Saul, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? 
The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil of the sheep and of the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel turned to go away, and the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, first for the word. We thank you that in the word of God, there is so much truth and it is so expansive, God. So we just pray as we get ready to hear from you today that you will open our ears, open our eyes and also open our hearts, God. Not only show us in the ways that we have tried to do it our own way, but show us how we have been given the ultimate example in Christ who humbled himself even to death on the cross. Help us see this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, um, some of you may actually know or recognize the title of today's sermon is actually taken from a relatively popular Frank Sinatra song. And as some of you know, I have a bit of an eclectic music style and I like old blue eyes. And this song 
My Way is actually one of my favorite Frank Sinatra songs. Now, at the end of his life, as he sings this song, this is about a man who looks back and he can only think to himself, you know, I did some stuff right, I did some stuff wrong, but regardless of what I did, you know what I did? I did it my way. And as a Sinatra fan, I actually like the song. But Frank Sinatra himself actually didn't like the song. In fact, as he grew older, he began to find the song to be a bit pretentious. He found it to be a bit arrogant, and he just hated performing it in general. And so what we have today in this text is the culmination of the rebellion of Saul, who could probably sing this song better than anybody else. Over the past few chapters, some of the common things that we have seen in the life of Saul and in the life of the people, some of those themes have been themes like rebellion, we've seen disobedience, we've seen arrogance, we've seen presumption, and we've even seen mistrust. And as we have just read, it all boils over here in this moment for Saul. Now, before we get there, we do need to address the elephant in the room. And just in case you haven't noticed, there's this big gray elephant in the middle of the sanctuary right now. And it comes right here. And some of you may have raised an eyebrow to it. It was this instruction that God gave to Saul. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now some of you probably saw this and thought, if I were Saul and if this was the instruction that was given to me, I probably wouldn't have done it either. I have to kill children, I have to kill women, I'm killing animals. He's killing innocent people, and this has been the instruction that God is given. But there are some things that we do need to think about here in order to actually understand what is happening. Because if we don't put it into context, it seems like God is this vicious ruler who's just hacking people into pieces. The first thing that we need to know is that the Amalekites are actually terrible people. Like, their wickedness is extreme here. And when you think about that, I, I want you to think Al-Qaeda. I want you to think ISIS. Think Taliban. They were essentially the terrorists of their time who had always themselves preyed on different people groups and had been ruthless in how they handled them. They had actually not spared the lives of women or children when they were destroying people. They were brutal. And that's the first thing. And I know it sounds crude to say this, but they kind of had it coming to them. God even says this in Scripture in Exodus 17, 14. And the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God has already promised that he was going to wipe these people out for their wickedness. So, in turn, they are deserving of death. And I know that's hard for us to, to grasp, but we're all deserving of death as well. And I realize that some of us have a philosophical issue knowing that God wanted to wipe an entire people out, but that's only part of it. 
The second thing that we need to think about is that the God that instructed them to wipe out the Amalekites is the same God that sent a global flood because of man's wickedness. This is the God who executes justice against sin. And even this is a reminder that we, every single one of us, but for the grace of God, would be cut off. If it wasn't for the grace and mercy of our Savior, every single one of us would have earned our rightful place, which is in hell through death. So what am I saying? I'm saying, in other words, it isn't God's wrath that should confound us. You shouldn't be confused when anybody falls under the umbrella of God's wrath. It is that any of us receives God's grace. It is that any of us receive God's mercy. That's what should confound us. But even when you can wrap your mind around this, what is more astonishing than God's wrath, what is more astonishing than God's grace, is the fact that Saul actually disobeys this direct commandment from God. Now, let's look at why he disobeys. It's kind of simple. He was greedy. He was selfish. When he was commanded to destroy everyone and everything, he spared Agag, and he took the things that he thought were of value. I mean, how could he have the audacity in the face of a direct commandment from God to just disobey it? He must not have cared much about his life. But before we sit in our judgment recliner seats and start to feel our little selves too much, we need to remember that every single one of us in this room, in our own way, has ignored the direct commandments of God. Every single one of us has known what God has spoken to be true, and in our own way, we have done it our own way. Y'all, Saul's condition here is not uncommon, but considering the position he'd been given, it does seem to increase the severity of his disregard for God's commandment. Now, there's something else that we need to wrestle with here. I want to break it down. The Lord said that I regret. He said that I regret that I have made Saul king. Okay, so... To see that God is saying that he regrets anything is, for me, concerning. may not be concerning for you, but to see that God would regret is concerning. I mean, after all, we don't actually have a God like the Greek gods, like the idol gods, who are moved by every whim, every rash decision, every human emotion, and who are prone to be irrational. Those are the kind of gods that have regret. Those are the kind of gods who display their anger and their frustration. But we don't actually worship that kind of God. And so that is a struggle for us here. If that is not the God that we worship, then why is he here expressing regret? First, we must come to grips with the fact that God does, in fact, have emotions. In the Bible, we see God has anger. We see that God has compassion. God has grief. God even has hate. We even see God has jealousy. We also see that God has joy. 
Now, the difference with God having these emotions versus man having these emotions is that when God has them, they are incorruptible, which means that they are all perfectly just in how he feels them and how he displays them. So when we see that he regrets here, that is better translated and understood that God was grieved. God was grieved. Now, when was another time that we have seen God in the Bible grieved? It was in the time that I mentioned above when God saw the sin on the earth and he flooded it. The fact that God feels this about Saul doesn't mean that he's any less sovereign. It doesn't mean that he's any less in control. In fact, what we should marvel at is that the fact that even though God knows what is going to happen, even though it is a part of a plan that he has preordained before time began, he somehow is not detached from us. That is amazing. He still feels and longs after us. So why is he grieving here specifically? After all, he is the one who made Saul king in the first place. Help it make sense, Brandon. Well, I'll try. Let's reflect. Why does Israel even end up with a king in the first place? It was because they'd rejected God as their king. And so God, in his appointing a king, actually chooses a king with the intent of showing Israel what happens when they hitch their wagging to a king who is anybody but him. He knew what Saul's character was, and he knew what power and success would do to him. But he did this to show Israel who they really needed. So again, you say, but if he knows that this is going to happen, why is he grieved? Simple. Because he loves us. God loves us. He loves his creation. And if our wrong, if our rejecting him puts enmity between us and him, then that grieves him. It grieved him that he had to give Israel this lesson, but it was also necessary so he could ultimately send us our permanent king. So it should not disturb us that God grieves, but it should actually remind us that he is jealous for us. That he yearns for us and that he will even pursue us. So we see here that God comes to Samuel And he tells them how Saul has not obeyed, and Samuel is deeply disturbed. I'm sure there are several reasons why, but not the least of them is the fact that Samuel actually warned Israel about what could happen by rejecting God as their king. And he has watched this unravel before his eyes. And so Samuel has to go break the news to Saul. And when he's looking for him, they mention that he set up a monument for himself. Now, I want you to notice the view of Saul and himself has changed dramatically. If you remember, he goes from this hiding man, humble, who doesn't even want to accept the responsibility of being king, 
to now he's this brash and boisterous king who's setting up monuments of himself. Now, we will all want to say that the power is what corrupted him. Because I think that always makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. Well, it was really the power that corrupted him. But I hate to tell you this, it wasn't the power that corrupted him. The power only revealed him. If you get power, if you get money, if you get fame, if you get acclaim, if you get notoriety, it doesn't change you. It only reveals who you already are, are without all that stuff. You would have lorded over people if you could have done it anyway. It only reveals the person that you already are. But I don't want you to notice what happens when Samuel finally comes to him. Saul is not repentant. He is not accepting his guilt here. Saul is delusional, y'all. And sin somehow has this way of making us blind. He starts hitting, y'all know how we do. We start doing all that churchy talk, especially when we know we've done something wrong. We start hitting folks with that holy talk. He said, blessed be to you, the Lord. I did what he told me to do. I know Samuel had to look at him like he had lost his mind. But you know what's interesting is I actually specifically, very specifically remember a time where I was a child and I actually had the exact same temporary amnesia that Saul suffered from from here. I remember specifically, so if you don't know this, my mother and my aunt are twins. And so back in the day, you know, they would have these little twin shopping days. And so all the cousins would be at somebody's house. And this time we were at our house. And so they were out and usually it would be the older cousins who were supervising us. But this specific time, it was the older cousins and my great grandmother who were there with us. And I vaguely remember opening the door, and she had warned me to not go out the door. And in a moment of, as best as I can explain it, temporary insanity, I replied with a terse comment to my great-grandmother. Well, of course, when my mother and my aunt got back home, they got wind of it. And when they asked me about it, again, in a moment of temporary amnesia, I told them, I don't remember saying that. But of course, every other child in the house said it was Brandon, or as they call me, Pete. And I remember that actually was probably the worst whooping I've ever gotten in my life. We had a hill in our backyard, and my aunt actually whooped me up the hill and right back down the hill again. And I helped, it helped me realize, you know what sin does? Sin makes us stupid. <laughs> It just does. It makes you say things you wouldn't say. It makes you see things you wouldn't see. It makes you do things you wouldn't do. That is why the Bible says that when we, see, when we sin, we deceive more than anybody else, our own selves. Notice how self-deceived Saul is here. He says that he has done what the Lord has commanded. He said that, by the way, to the only person in the world who would know that he didn't do what the Lord commanded, and that was Samuel the prophet. And when he comes to Samuel, he shouldn't have said that he did what the Lord commanded. He should have just been honest. He should have just said, you know what? I know what the Lord said, but I did it my way. I think he's going to be pleased with this. 
And then there comes this important moment, and it's almost comical when you read it. He's telling him, yeah, I did exactly what the Lord told me to do and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, and Samuel goes, is that a sheep out here? And it makes his sin obvious. Saul's sin, like all of ours, y'all, it has a way of finding us out. Adam and Eve hid. Cain answered a question with a question. Isaac and Rebekah were seen flirting. Jonah tried to run. Hidden sins can't stay hidden for long. They have a way of making themselves known. And the Bible gives us a warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow into your flesh, into sin, and into destruction, you're going to reap it. If you sow into Christ, you will reap eternal life. And then it is almost like you can see Saul dig himself deeper and deeper in this hole. And I can understand it, Saul, because I remember being a child and knowing after that first lie, all I got to do is die with the lie at this point. I'm going down with the lie. And then so he says this. He says, well, it wasn't me. It was really the soldiers. They were really the ones who did it. But we were just going to offer this to the Lord. We didn't really mean, we weren't going to take this for ourselves. I want you to see how this snowballs. This is all because he wanted to do things the way he wanted to do it. He doesn't destroy the Amalekites like God commands because he doesn't. He is delusional because of his sin. He then has to cover that sin up. All of this could have been avoided if he had just done it the way God had instructed to begin with. Every single one of us can look back at a moment and realize, you know what, if I had just been obedient to God at the first time, I wouldn't have had to do all this other uncovering of my sin and all the destruction that happened as a result. Every single one of us can remember a time when that's happened. This should be a sign for us that even the slightest teeniest bit of disobedience before God is total disobedience when it comes to God. And while he can use all of this to be sanctifying in our lives, y'all, it glorifies God that much more when we are obedient the first time. So there are two things effectively at work here. There is the reality that he has ignored God. But Samuel, as any friend would lovingly do, confronts him. And instead of there being this acknowledgement and confession, there's deflection from Saul. There are excuses. And that is when you know there is no longer any trust in God on the part of Saul. We are instructed to confess our sins to one another and to God. But Saul does not trust that this will be met with grace and mercy. 
And so, he hides his sin. And even when confronted by Samuel boldly, he says, but it was them. They did it. And when he tries to still get credit, saying, well, at least I offered it as a sacrifice to God, Samuel hits him with the uppercut of the century, the one that if, if you grew up in anywhere near a Christian household, you heard this statement. Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Y'all, when it comes to sin, I want you to hear this. Tithing will not free you from it. When it comes to sin, paying for a stranger's meal will not free you from it. When it comes to sin, just praying without the acknowledgement of your sin will not free you from it. Nothing apart from a heart of confession and repentance will free you from the burden of sin. You can try to do as many good deeds as you want. Apart from repentance, those deeds will only condemn you more. Saul wanted, though, what we all have wanted. He said, can I just give you something, God, to make this go away? Just just name the price and I'll pay it. What do I need to give you to wipe this all away? But it doesn't work that way. We cannot simply give ourselves out of trouble. If that were the case, we'd all be out. And it reads here, it says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Saul would now have to face the full wrath of his sin as he would now have the kingdom torn away from him. Now, This is what's beautiful, and this is what is redemptive about this for us. As this kingdom has now been ripped away from Saul, God was placing it in the hands of Christ, who would uphold it perfectly with righteousness and with justice. He would not do it in his own way. But Christ himself would humble himself to the will of the Father and even to death. If Jesus is not above submitting to the will of the Father, then none of us is. 
we must all likewise be willing to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus and submit ourselves to the will of God and to the will of our Father, knowing that if he could submit himself to the will of God, so can we. That is only made possible because Jesus submitted himself. Not only has he left us the perfect example, but he has now given us the only means that we have for salvation, and that's in him. It's only through Jesus Christ that any of us can be saved. Why? Because every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us was born at odds and at war with God. And it is Jesus Christ who has reconciled us in right relationship with God because he bore on his back our sins. That sin that that we had that we could not pay, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and he paid the price for our sins. And so we don't have to do it our way. We can do it his way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you that you have not only given us the ultimate example, but you have also given us the only means that we have to come into true faith and a knowledge of who you are. God, it is so easy to rely and lean on our own strength. It is so easy to rely on our own wisdom. But the Bible warns us that thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools and their foolish hearts were darkened. God, the more we lean on ourselves, the more we depend on ourselves, the more we try to just do it our own way, the darker our hearts will get and the further we'll drift away from you. God, let this be a reminder that it glorifies you so much more when we know what is right and when we do what is right from the beginning. But also let us be warned about the cost that can be paid for our disobedience, God. Yes, we are grateful that our sins have been paid ultimately by Jesus Christ. But God, we also know that if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, those sins have not been paid for. And any of us who does not know you, we will have to be the final payment for our sins. God, doing it our own way comes at a cost, and you have paid that price for us. So God, we just pray if there's anybody in this room who has been struggling with listening to the word, heeding the word, doing what you have instructed, that you will reconfigure them and redirect them and point them in the way that they should go. But we also pray, God, that there is anyone in this room who does not know you and is living their life, doing it their own way, and who can't figure out how to get out of one hole to the next one to the next one. God, I just pray that this is the day that you would open their eyes, that you will reveal yourself to them sovereignly, that you would save them, and that you would be there for them and take them from life, from death, to life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.